Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors on this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. Smart technology is increasingly being used in everything from buildings to farms to make them more efficient and productive. These buildings or farms use artificial intelligence, robots, and other automation to minimize human involvement. While this is all very positive, the downside is that with the deployment of these technologies, the security risk is growing in all areas of the supply chain, which, as you know, is already threatened by the war in Ukraine and the continued effects of COVID. My guest today is Andre Turville, founder and CEO of Arcs Alliance Limited. Prior to founding Arcs Alliance, Andre was an investment director for a London-based single-family office where he invested in clean tech across Europe and Southeast Asia. Having built a working knowledge and experience in energy and infrastructure, Andre then became involved in the UK government's APPG's energy and cybersecurity. It is from his combined experience of operations and security that led him to identify the rapidly evolving threats on supply chains that led him to then found Arcs Alliance a company that's dedicated to addressing supply chain cyber resilience. In today's episode, we will talk about the evolving threats and opportunities in the supply chain space and Andre's experience bootstrapping his company to now being in the midst of closing his first seed round. Welcome, Andre. Hi, Anita. Great to be on the show. So, Andre, talk me through the genesis of your idea that made you say, I'm going to take the plunge and become an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's a really good question. I class myself as the accidental entrepreneur. It was definitely not something that I set about to build. And it was just by happen chance. And it's, I think I've got an inquisitive mind. So whenever I see a problem, I'm always trying to find a solution. And I always anticipate that other people have thought of those solutions for me. How I came about ARCs is that prior to being the investment director, I was operational with a company. And it was early, early stage business as well in the nuclear industry, small modular reactors and plutonium disposition through new fuel cycles. And that took me into government, the APPGs, which is a gathering of people from industry, sharing ideas, thoughts, enabling technologies. And through that, it brought me about three, just over three years ago into a meeting of an APPG looking at critical infrastructure and threats. And he was talking about cyber. And first off, I questioned myself why I was in that meeting. I really, not quite a Luddite in terms of systems and IT and so on. But I always thought that cyber was the domain of IT departments. And it was some of the conversation within that meeting that made me realize, first and foremost, that cyber actually is a corporate risk and needs to be back in the boardroom, not necessarily just the domain of the IT department. And that was the first thing that I observed, being somebody who's always operated at C-suite level. 
The next things that came out was actually it was a bit of a eureka moment to me because once I'd realized actually this is my issue, not an IT issue, it's the emerging and changing threat as far as what was being presented from a cyber perspective that as larger companies are deploying deeper tech solutions and larger companies have got bigger resources and are both in people and in putting systems in place, it's making hackers look at weak links in the supply chain as a point of attack. So mindful that last year, 5.3 trillion was the estimated cost of cyber attacks across the globe. That's twice the GDP of the UK. So it's very apparent that these guys are not going to give up that easily. So they're looking down the supply chain. So that was the first piece, is this nature of attack across supply chains. And that got me to thinking, what does my supply chain look like? And I thought I don't have visibility. And I didn't really think of supply chain, the supply chain at that point. What are all the different nodes when you go down the multiple tiers? And all of these now, when you think of them, they're either an asset to you, your suppliers are your asset, but they are now a potential threat. So how do you square that circle? First off, you have to have visibility. So that was my first stop. How do I get visibility? Second, then looking at what does that risk present me? But more important, if you see something that's a risk, do you want to be able to do something about it? Because you want to deal with those suppliers. And that's the problem I started to look at. I'm thinking, first off, how do you create a visibility, that digital twin of a supply chain? And then how do you start to get a greater granularity of who they are, what they're doing from a cyber governance and from a cyber perspective, what an attack would mean on your business. Thinking about a denial of service, so you couldn't get an item, a widget or a service from one of your suppliers. What does that do to my production? And that's a security issue. But more importantly, if they steal IP or within the context of the nuclear industry and other industries, what's the safety case around that? If somebody can get into a system, that becomes a critical issue. So that was the problem. And it's become more and more apparent. 60%, over 60% of major cyber breaches last year came through supply chain. And this trend is increasing. So I identified that problem three or four years ago. And to your question, how did I go about it? I, being an investor, I crossed from Westminster to the Pizza Express in Millbank because I was hungry. It was a late meeting. And whilst I was eating my pizza, I scrapped out what I thought the solution would look like on a napkin. And that oddly... Spoken like a true entrepreneur. <laughs> Back yeah, in, in, yeah, in the UK, it used to be beer mats, but now it's <laughs> napkins. And, and that was the genesis of the idea. And I went out to look to invest in a company that looked like that. It didn't find anything that, for me, really solve the problem. It gave you visibility, maybe of a supply chain, and then you can interrogate it. But my thing is you need to support the suppliers. That creates greater value for the whole community and it becomes more dynamic. I was thinking about so, <laughs> the Great Plains of Africa. Those that will move together are a yeah. lot more secure than the outliers. I'm thinking, how do you create a community, a safe community that can operate? And what is you know, in cyber, it's not going away. It's going to get worse and worse. How do you bring everybody together, whether you're a large corporate or you're a micro business? They all play a part in the supply chain. What's interesting to me is it sounds like what you actually started with is looking at what was there from an investor perspective. So you had an understanding of what the solution might look like, and you went around as an investor first, trying to see if there was a company that's doing this. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely right. And, and, and there's companies out there that are doing it in part, but it didn't touch what I thought the real problem was, 
which is I actually see. more of a supportive mechanism to enable all the companies within a framework. And I think that was key to me is being an enabler, because I thought for me, that's where the real value is. And that's yeah. what scalability is as well and the stickiness. So I had some experience working in cybersecurity and there's so much technology. There's so many different companies looking at cybersecurity from so many different angles. Mm-hmm. And there's so much jargon in that industry. So how did you go about trying to understand what the different companies are actually doing? How did you map out what was there and where there were holes? Good question. Every bit of technology has its place, right? And there's some great technologies out there. And for me, it's how do you integrate with those potentially down the line? Um, I took it from, you know, I was going from my starting point, which is pretty base as, a, as an operator in the cyber world. It's not my background. It was accidental, as I mentioned. But it's the likes of me that gets attacked. It's the likes of me within a company at a C-suite level I had to make decisions. So I took it from that first, is if I can understand it and get it into a language that I can understand, and I can translate that, there's an opportunity in itself. I, I speak to my peers in the investment world and in the operational world, and it's all, it's the monster in the cupboard that they don't really want to look at. Yeah. And I think it's like anything. You really have to just break down those barriers because... A lot of cyber operators, they're very hard tech guys and they're super smart and they can deliver and they can see problems and and right away across the piece. But you need to get them to be able to respond to you in a way that you can understand. And that's quite tough because I had to feel like the stupid one, just asking why, explain it to me in simple (laughs) language. Draw it for me. That, that was, that, that, that's how I went about it. And then looking at the bigger picture as well. So who are these hackers? What are they trying to do? What is the impact on my business? So I can understand all those elements. I know how my business operates. I understand what risk looks in the broader sense. And then it's just breaking it down into something that's bite-sized, understandable and relatable. And if you can do that, then you can build something around that. And with my product guys, I keep saying it might be my what my mother who works in a worked in an office as the office administrator, that could be the person that has to use this product because we're looking from micro businesses through. So if we can focus on being able to get that level of understanding, you can build a complexity out of that, but it's still got to keep at a language level and an understanding level that people can operate with. Yeah. I'm going to keep at in this validation phase. That's what I call it. But I find this is the most important part of the entrepreneurial journey. And I know you do pivot, but talk to me about how did you know where to focus that's going to actually get you to the next stage in terms of viability, MVP, funding, et cetera? How do you narrow that? Yeah, good, good question. Maybe that comes back to being on the investment side before, because you have to learn about things fast, and you have to do a lot of analysis. So really taking the idea and bouncing it across a network of people that I know, and I'm fortunate to have a great network. So getting them to challenge the ideas, first and foremost, around the core idea. So you, of course, you can pivot, you can get pulled off into all different areas. And so the first and foremost, I thought I don't, the whole problem, the whole bottleneck is around everything's too technical. So let's just focus on, first off, let's just understand what the simplest problem is. So if the problem is with coming through supply chain, let's focus on that. What is a supply chain? How do you map a supply chain? 
And so breaking the product down into simple parts. Mm. Doing that actually has become a great strength for us because supply chain mapping is broadening us out into a broader supply chain risk tool as it happens. Again, but it's down to focus, where do you start first? So to, to your question. So it's doing the analysis, looking at products, looking at competition, and then going out to speak to people who are operational as well. What are you doing now? How do you go about it? Would this be better? Would this create levels of complexity? So building around that, and then looking what the technical solution looks like behind that, and then going to uh, who's now our CTO, saying, you know, what does it take to build this? What are the complexities? What are the costs? How can we get to that first MVP to test and try it? And that's how we've been really, I've always been very conscious in terms of spend. Every pound has got a uh, dollar has got to bring value, even at those early days, because fundraising is harder. You never know when you're going to be out of cash. So that, that initial focus, good analysis, you know, going using your network, asking questions, being naive about the problem as long as you can be, flip into one of the guys that are, girls that are the ones that are, are, are then becoming thought leaders. So that, yeah, I think that was the approach. Nice. I love that. So being naive about and asking a lot of questions and really breaking down the problem. And I think the third one you didn't mention, but you infer from what I've heard is you had a vision of what you needed as a business. Because you came at it from that point of view. I'm a business. I have a supply chain. I have no visibility. What does that mean in terms of my vulnerability? You had a vision, maybe from your napkin, of what a solution looked like. So that probably also helped you to break down this problem and ask the right questions to understand where the opportunities are. Would that be correct? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's how my mind has always worked. I'm a bit dyslexic, to say the least. So I have to, my head works in images as well. So I have to be able to seize things and map things to be able to bring stuff together. And I think we all operate on that level to a certain degree. And then because that, that raises questions, it's once you can see something, you can really start to get a feel for it and get familiar with it. Otherwise, it's always in the abstract. And I think that's the important thing for me is to be able to. And once that's in my head, which probably leads into a degree of stubbornness, <laughs> far from all <laughs> about listening, you still have to keep that, that one piece. Because yeah. this is the other thing about getting lots of advice. And every bit of advice is or every opinion is important. But thinking back, I could have got pulled into all different directions because I was speaking to cyber experts. So you have to keep that vision and then accumulate that information to help deliver that, to deliver that vision, if you like, if you know the core is right. So keep the core and then you build out from that. So what did you do next? So now you spoke to a lot of people, you had a sense of what that initial path should be. Mm -hmm. Was it getting a CTO next, building an MVP? What was the next step? Yeah, the next step was taking what we'd drawn out and putting it into a proper business requirements document for us. What is this really going to look like in the short term against a midterm vision of the product? And then going out. So initially, we just got that business requirements document. I had technical support in-house and working alongside me and then we went to a company just to map it and broaden that out where they had a lot of developers it was always my intention and it has been to have it as an in-house developed tool but in that early days we invested it was about three months and not an insignificant amount of money when you're starting from scratch but that gave us the if you like the foundation of the product how it would work how it would feel in the early days to be able to go out and then really start to see potential customers 
show it to early market potential, those early innovators. The product wasn't functional and usable at that point, but we got that initial feedback. And it was that validation of what we do, we do was doing makes sense against all the other analysis that we did. So that's interesting. You didn't hire someone to build out an MVP. You found a development company that had developers to build according to your requirements document. That's right. So that gave us the framework. It gave us some consideration around the architecture. And none of the code that was built back then now exists in the platform. I was going to say, yeah. It superseded that. But what it allowed me to do, it helped me educate myself, actually, going through that process. Even though I had somebody technical to support me, it dropped me into a world that was alien to me, development. And it allowed me to learn very quickly. And it also taught me to make some mistakes as well. It also taught me a lot of hard lessons very soon. So it was a great, it was a great investment. Um, but Would you recommend it if you had to redo it, that stage, or advice for other entrepreneurs that are in their concept and need to go build the MVP? What advice would you give them? Yeah, good point. I, I, it worked well for us in terms of we were looking to build what is a complex platform. The complexity is in its simplicity. That's <laughs> all these things. I think that was great to get that heavyweight understanding and knowledge very quickly because building your own development team takes a while. Mm-hmm. takes a commitment, employing people and building a team out. And as I say, we wanted to bootstrap this. So from that perspective, I think it, wor- it worked well. I can't advise people to go down that route. I think it, it depends on every everybody's business and what platform they're trying to build, but it definitely worked for us. And for me, as I say, as much as anything, it was the learning. It was my personal development to enable me to build a team around getting the right CTO, getting the right, you know, developers in place, the right product people, and how that dynamic works. So it was a, it was a crash, three-month crash course. And off that, we did have something that we could build on, which we have built on, but hmm. code being code, you override it, and it morphs out. But the structure, the thought about the architecture, and also the thought about the data in the background that we have access to, which really supercharges the business that we've got, all came out of those early learnings. I want to go into how you found your first customers, but before that, being an entrepreneur is such a different ball game to what you were doing before as an investor. How did you upskill yourself or learn about all the different aspects of building a company? Did you find accelerators, startups, advisors? Where did you go to get on that journey and learn quickly as you were building this? Yeah, because the, we were investing in early stage businesses, I've been around entrepreneurs quite a bit i've learned a lot from them it's funny as the investor you think i don't know i, I guess as, and this is a quite a good thing vcs who have got founders on the investment on, on the partners or investment committee they're great vcs because if they've been there and done it you'll probably have a greater understanding of what it really takes but i'd learned a lot from being an investor being around early stage businesses and also being operational across Prior to being an investment manager, I've been operational across a number of industries and sectors and looked at from sales to innovation to governance. So I've got that from larger companies as well as have some high touch points with smaller businesses. So I think it's collective from that. So that so I had a base level. Accelerators have been helpful as well. We've done mm. accelerators, one which was with IoT Tribe based out of Madrid and London, which in space tech, oddly, but actually 
cyber fits across our supply chain fits across every business yeah. and another one more recently which is in the built world which is Relab, which is an accelerator out of another family office called goldacre which was excellent too so there's some learnings to be had there and also safe places to speak to people again i keep talking about this naive stuff as you build a bigger team you can't you have to look as if you know everything for you to a point for your, for your team to keep everything moving along as an entrepreneur, it's great to have people that are sounding boards that you can pick up the phone and say, oh, what, what am I doing? Why, what should I be thinking about here? How do I deal with this particular issue? Yeah. And the other thing for me is who else is on the team? I've got Angus Runsing, who's my CFO. I've worked with Angus. He was, was my main analyst when we were at the family office. He's, we worked on the, in the nuclear industry a bit together. And his, his experience in governance and numbers and having that person who can challenge me is great. Yeah. And so a lot of the learning has come collectively as well. And some That's great- nice that you have, a, you have someone that you've known that kind of complemented your skill set in terms of building the company that you could work alongside. He's probably one of the first people I speak to in the morning and the last at night. Does <laughs> <laughs> your wife know this? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, me and Angus have got a special <laughs> um, um, so, so then what came next was, did you go look for money to fund some of these activities or did you go and find customers? We looked for money. We knew that it would be a journey before we could bring customers on board and get them paying. This is a quite a heavy build in terms of the product. Yeah. So we were very lucky. One of the first friends that I went to about the idea understands cyber. And he loved the idea and his wife loved the idea. And they invested that first bit of cash at the get-go. It wasn't a big sum, but it really enabled us to get, get moving and start getting a product pulled together and getting that first initial team. And then we went out for money. We went to do a pre-seed round and we were really fortunate. One of the investors that came in on that was somebody else I've worked with on projects, I should say, into on the investment front, who was behind a number of companies and probably all saints, Jim Shark and a few businesses in the waste industry. And he liked me and trusted me and saw, knew how I operated. And he'd had a big event, so uh, invested. And, and then we had a couple of VCs out of the States. And we were really fortunate for that at pre-seed stage to get that quality of investor. Yeah. So Blackburn Ventures out of Denver and News, which is a family office and now family office fund out of New York both invested. And that was great because it gave some proper validation for other investors wanting to come in because due diligence and so on and knowing the space. And that really got us on our journey. And that was interesting because I'm fortunate in the sense that I know the investor world, having been an investor myself, I had a reasonable network and people who knew what I'd done and knew me a little bit, which eased that first first raise. It's not common to have VC interest at that pre-seed stage, were there introductions from your network again that got you in front of those people? Yeah, it's okay. people that touch points within the past and they really like what we do. And my investment thesis before was around clean technology and enabling technologies. And what we're doing is really an enabling technology into transitional technologies, whether that's power. And so it had a touch point with that. So straight off the bat, I could have the conversation of how ARGs really fitted into that thesis. So yes, 100% in terms of those VCs, it was useful to 
know them, be them be within my within my universe as such. But that doesn't really get you there unless you can really demonstrate something. You know, there's there's few favors in the world of VC. It's yeah. gotta be it's gotta be solid. And it's so got the pre-seed round with the team, the idea, and then there's the market opportunity. How would you rank what helped you to to be successful in your pre-seed? Yeah, I think we really struck on a chord at the right time, you know, um, underestimating the relationships that I, I have and had. Um, but I think that really supply chain became very much into focus. Real events that were happening in cyber, but more broadly, I was happening in pandemic geopolitical events. So that was a top topic, if I can get it out in its end. But then you overlay that with cyber. So you know, both of those together, it was as hot as it got in terms yeah. of market interest and things like that. I think the other thing that really helped is that there's a lot of VCs and investors, and we've got angels as well, who are wanting to get into the cyberspace because, you know, it's a massive market opportunity, a lot of talk. But they didn't really get the technicality or the, they didn't have the depth of right. knowledge. But in terms of what we're doing as a business and as a product, they could relate to that. Mm. So that made the conversations a lot more. And it was perhaps a more approachable side of cyber than going into something again, which seems lots of zeros and ones and it's yeah. super, super complex. Yeah, very low level. I agree. Even when I heard about your idea and what you do, it just made sense. So then, okay, so you got this pre-seed money. What was your next step? Was it to hire people or was it to go get customers or both? Yeah, it was about hiring that because as I mentioned earlier, we got the core of the product. We got a kind of an MVP demonstrable product of what it will look and feel like, even though it didn't really do what we needed it to do. And then we really, what we then had to do is get people on board that could build this. So that was, how do I, I've got limited, you can only raise so much money right at that stage. What's my landing point? Where can I get to with this amount of funds in the funds? Can I really get it to, can we build a product that's ready for market? And so that was my, my ambition and kind of my, if you like, my waystone in terms of where we're going. And that was building the team. So very much heavily on the dev side, because without the product, we so marketing and everything else like that so the marketing becomes more about the marketing to get that initial feedback and marketing to raise more money effectively mm. so we started recruiting and we did a hybrid between some knowledge base and tech people within the uk and then we recruited also and built a team in romania out of predominantly bucharest again looking at where can i get the highest level of knowledge and skill but keeping the costs at a yep. something that's reasonable and it's also the other thing is talent acquisition everybody wants to work for a startup but nobody wants to work for a startup in terms of, they like the excitement of it but there's we all know that it's can be a bit chaotic you don't have all the benefits and it and developer skills are highly in demand so looking at how can i build a team that's going to be with me at least till that point in time, I've got the product because attrition and losing people when you're building right. that knowledge base, that in-house built knowledge base based on that whole innovation period is super important to keep. Yep. 
Mm-hmm. And can I ask a little deeper here? How did you go about recruiting, especially when you said you're also and you also created a remote team in Romania? Did you get a recruiter in house? Did you do it yourself through LinkedIn and personal network? What was your what did you find worked well for building your team, your core team as well as your remote team? Yeah, uh, <clears throat> we were fortunate. That's a good question. We, We've not used any recruiters today. And that's not a downer on recruiters. They do a great job. And I think if you get the right one, that's fantastic. But we really needed to get some people. We, first off, my CTO is Romanian, based here in the UK. So there's a network over there. We had some people on, we had a couple of people on the ground off the bat over there. And then we built out from recommendation. So trying to create an environment, an attractive environment for attracting these people. So in Romania, it was the opportunity to work with a UK company, something with innovation. The tech stack that we're working and the languages that we code in are at the leading edge, if you like. Okay. So offering highly skilled people who are already trained in that and equipped in that and bringing some junior, more junior people in behind Mm. that could skill up as well. So from the get-go, it's a risk because it's also bringing in junior people. It can be a draw on resources. But I think if you energize and structure it, you can actually build some really good quality people from the get-go, bringing some more juniors in. So we had a bit of a spread team. So it's all been word of mouth and recommendation to date. We did recruit a couple of people on some of the main sites, which are, I say, main sites, recruitment sites that are dedicated to those sort of skills for the juniors. And the broader team, a lot of people has been word of mouth and um, and recommendations. Okay, so let's talk about customers now. You've recruited your team, you're building your product, you've got some money. What was your strategy for finding product market fit, finding the right customers that are going to value your product at the stage that you were in? Yeah, yeah, good question. I think I really leverage network again on that. I've got a very clear understanding of where I want to go and what my market segments are. And I'm a great believer in hitting a niche and making it work, building up from that. Where we got our first customers with and from, I should say, it is really that me leveraging that network again. Not always people that I knew, but saying, okay, this is what we do. More companies do you know who are in those organizations? Who can I speak to? Getting down and dusty and breaking down a few doors and looking for, looking for the innovators, looking yeah. for those organizations, because whilst we're giving them a great product and it's almost giving them at that stage, you've got to respect that they're giving you time and they're giving you, again, so much resource in terms of information, feedback. So we... We found those through our network and just work very closely with them because all those learnings now, as we're starting to go to market into the niches that we want to go into, yeah, be the foundation. And then one thing that we have got is that we we sit across multiple supply chains being supply chains, whilst our model goes to a particular niche. Underneath that niche, there's companies of all different types. So having that early spread. We start to understand what the persona, who are the personas, what are real drivers, mm. what is the new proposition, and then that starts to build up. Is our product really hitting all those nodes? Is it? Are we getting that early indication that we've got product market fit here? And are we collecting enough information to understand around that scalability? Are we because we want to scale this? It's a SaaS model. Uh, we've got to get out there. There's thousands and thousands of users. 
How right. do we really get that messaging and make sure that we're understanding what our customers really need, especially that this is an emerging area. So sometimes some of the customers don't really know what they need. <laughs> they're on are they're on the learning process themselves. Yeah. And what we and that's again something that we have to be very mindful of. What they think they might want might not be what they want. What we think they want. And I think this is also the time where this tension between should you build something horizontal that's going to go across several industries versus building something that's a really good fit for one industry comes into play. Is that something that you had to decide upon and how did you make the trade-off on which way to go? Yeah, good question. Yeah, there's definitely nuances. I think for us, the product does have a very broad market fit in terms of industries and size of companies and wherever they sit on that on that map. But I think for us, for our focus is more around really... The market, how do we market? How do we communicate to a particular industry? What are the tailwind drivers that are pushing that industry over another industry? Is the are they adopting points of standards and legislation because it's critical infrastructure, for instance, versus right. another type of organization? So really trying to get where is that, where is that tailwind? And and what point of market do we go? Do we go at the larger big prime organizations or do we go mid-market? Right. Or do we go to these? So that's more the decision in terms of where we sit the technology and the product rather than the product itself. I see. So how did you make that decision? Talk us through what was the analysis that you did or any advice again to entrepreneurs that are debating the same question. Yeah, looking at the external factors on a particular industry. So what I was looking at, where are the challenges coming from supply chain first and foremost? Then I was thinking about who's really adopting this technology right now? Who's this really going to have a pain point on? One, who are getting hit by supply chain cyber attacks? And why is that happening? And not quite often we've seen this transition to digitization. Actually, for me, I wish I was surprised because I'm thinking actually some of the industries that we've been looking at that you wouldn't consider as being high-tech and real-time organizations but they're having to catch up. So they're going through rapid adoption, which is causing some pressure points. These are the guys that are probably more, less familiar with the whole cyber world. And actually our product talks to that because we are talking to people that don't have that depth of knowledge, these underserved, who don't have the resources. That's how I started to look at it. As opposed to where I started, I was thinking, going, I know the nuclear industry or the aerospace industry. Yeah. But it, well, there's lots of legislation, lots of risk, lots of governance, which you think actually that should be the prime one. And yes, there's a massive market opportunity, but they're probably going to be further down the line in some ways, but less speed in terms of adoption because they've got some of their needs already covered. Because when you look at competition, it's not always about product itself. It's around inherent current processes that exactly. are used. Exactly. I was yeah. going to say... Whereas you look at to look at sectors that don't have the processes, don't have the tech, but are having to digitize and transition, it's the perfect time to go in because you're you're facilitating that. So that's how I went about it. So those external factors, and then just again, it's like everything else that I've done uh, while building arcs and before. You just have to you have to shake yourself and get drop off those kind of fruits that are really stuck to you because yeah, it's almost like you you looked at 
what your competition was in terms of their existing alternative yep. and seeing where your value proposition far outweighs whatever it is that they're doing mm-hmm. currently. Exactly. We can improve their processes. Right. Which is great because in a way that's an open door because you're saying, well, what you're doing now, fantastic. This is really going to switch it up. But then there's an inertia because you really have to demonstrate that and they're not in, got to do it now. Whereas actually where we've been looking at market segments, they're going, actually, we don't have anything. We can't exist without having something. Right. We've been oddly sucked into that space as well. Which are those spaces? Which are the industries that you find the best? Yeah, for? one of the big ones for us is the construction industry and civils. Again, and this has been helped by one of the accelerators as well. We look at PropTech. They're digi- rapidly digitizing. The civils and construction have big touch points with infrastructure, national infrastructure. They're overlaying, they're accelerating in terms of their adoption of digitization. So we have digital meets physical, so mm. building management systems and so on. Mm. All of a sudden, they're quite they're quite open to attack. They're probably one of the highest hits in terms of brand size. So I think they were number one on really? the yeah. and I it, never it, knew it, that. No, no, neither did I until I started to Google and look and then ask and you think, oh, wow, this is a, a big problem. GCHQ has put some information out about that area. It's a great, it's a great area where we're getting some good traction. And we're looking at other areas too, of course. And as I say, we're there's focus and then there's this opportunistic piece. Right. Uh, we work anyway within particular sectors, there's crossover suppliers within supply chains, and that all just builds, it becomes self-fulfilling in a way you just get across. Interesting. Tell me, so now you're in the process of, fundraising again your seed round is that correct that's right yeah hopefully close to closing and what is it where are you in that journey you're you're close to closing you said did you yeah we've got term sheets we've got two parts we've done an asa so advanced subscription to this round which is a mix of angels by net worths we're really interested in being following it and then we're doing the price round now we've got term sheets which is great led by one of our existing vcs and then we've got two new family office and a, another corporate venture coming in. We've got another one that's interested. I'm not sure if they're coming into this close or we'll do keep it open. But, but yeah, it's been a difficult, challenging time. Has the process been longer, shorter, given the market dynamics today? It's been longer than I'd hoped. Not uncomfortably, but longer. But we've got there. And I think any entrepreneur or anybody going through funding at the moment is probably seeing the same. One thing that we've got is one of our existing investors that's been with us from the start so you know on that coming mm. in seed they also between the pre-seed and the seed we did a bridge with the future fund so they stepped up to that mark as well and that's been great so and we can build out from there lovely and in terms of the actual fundraising process what is it that investors are looking for in the seed round if there are other entrepreneurs currently in the process of preparing for a seed round, what -hmm. advice would you give them? What do they need to have in place to have a successful seed round? Yeah, it's funny, actually, because what I've seen is that the whole kind of whether it's seed, series A, so it's all got quite fused of late. It's quite interesting in terms of the dynamics, you know, European VCs versus US VCs. And we've got a mixture of both. I think they want to see a strong team is always executionable. If it can execute, it's key. They want to look at, is there an address? Well, you know, really getting down, what's your market? How are you going to hit it? More and more, they're looking for, 
we've found that is that early traction? What is that pipeline? Especially within the SaaS, which is key. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it comes down to, I've found of late that a lot of it comes down to really getting them to understand the problem that you're trying to address and communicating yeah. that is difficult because yeah. quite often you've got, people don't want a deck that's more than 10 pages, you've, unless you've got relationships, it's just going into a, a pit that you don't know whether it's going to get dusted off and seen. And because a lot of them have got these automated processes that you have to pitch on now on the systems. So really trying to get that message across and making, making you shine. I think the other thing is just getting that awareness out there using mm. things like LinkedIn. You've got to really market yourself in a broader sense, because otherwise you're just lost in the noise of everything else that's going on. Mm. Yeah, to market yourself be visible on LinkedIn, have a pitch, which is simple, but really explains what the problem is that you're solving and the market opportunity. And obviously have a team that has some track record of execution. I think the last one you said was have show, show that you have traction with your pipeline. Yeah. Yeah. More and more they're wanting to see. Even Even at the seed stage, this is important. Yeah, I th- again, I think it dep- depends on your product and what you're doing, of course. But they want to be able to speak to a customer. Yeah. They, who are the personas? Why are they really buying this? What are your key differentiators? And as I mentioned, what, things like not just competitors, what is the inertia? Because I think what we're seeing now in the market is that there's been, especially I think it's been driven out of the US, lots of money being pushed in at early stage companies at a level of an idea. And then they're floundering, spending lots and lots of money. They're floundering. They haven't met the metrics. And now everybody's scared. They're stepping back, which is a little bit unfair, I think, across the piece. I think there's lots of companies which are well-formed, true seed stage, but the, uh, the current market conditions are really having a, creating a few pain points, I think, for people raising money. Now. Any advice, pointers, anything that you've learned going through the process on what you really need to nail in the pitch deck? First off, keep refining it. Ask for feedback. Because if I'd love, to, in fact, I will do after this. Cool. I'm going to go and have a look at the, my first pitch deck versus the one I've got now. You have to keep modifying it based on feedback. Keep it clean. I learned later than I should, less is more in terms of not lots of text. Keep it punchy. Looking at really stating what the, clearly what the problem is, the solution, the market. Don't be frightened to put numbers in there. It shows that you really got your head around. You've got to go. And and yeah, that, I think that would be my piece. And also having a good teaser as well. Just rather than sending out 12 slides, just have something that's got a couple of one page, two pages that's punchy. That's going to get them to look at that deck. So the teaser, like a one page PDF that you put together? Exactly. Okay. Because that's a lot easier. And it's a lot easier for other people. If you're leveraging your network as well, it's a lot yeah. easier. I'm going to pass that on than a whole deck and it just summarizes the summarizes the nature of the idea and the other thing just make sure that you understand where you're sending it as well because really get your top investors that you think fit within your space and focus on those first and uh, make sure it's a targeted targeted approach and if you can relate it if you can relate it to something else they've invested in again that's having to do the research Fabulous. Really good practical advice for other people at the same stage as you. Okay, that brings us to the end of the formal part of the podcast, Andre, but I still have a few questions. And I usually start with what's your favorite book? Any book that you would recommend for others? Gosh, that's a good question. 
If I'm honest, my, I, I, one of my favorite books is uh, Captain Cook, the biography of Captain Cook, which is not a business book, I know. That's okay. By Richard Howe. I think for any entrepreneur, you've got to have a sense of adventure. It's an adventure and you're going to be hit with some of the most adverse scenario situation along the way. And when you see somebody like these great maritime explorers, you know, part out, leave the ports, not really knowing where, where, they're, yeah, where they're going. Exactly. And, and that's the life of an entrepreneur, I think. And you can gain a lot of courage and conviction when you think of these guys. So good yeah, metaphor. That's... I like that. It's a good metaphor. What's a favorite productivity tip or hack or tool that you use to keep you productive? Yeah, that's you no know, classically. I'm not, I'm, uh, I don't use apps. Okay. <laughs> I've heard that I've heard that more times than you can imagine from entrepreneurs actually. Yeah. You're the analog type, are you? Yeah, absolutely. I make lists and I've got some whiteboards in my office and I make sure I it's in big bold that I on my whiteboard, which is my tick-off list on a daily basis. And I do in terms of again from how my head works i really mind map things where i need to be where i need to prioritize and the one thing that i do have it's i call it my rooms which is again it's on another whiteboard and, it, and it's operations it's people it's fundraising it's sales and each in each of those rooms i've always got my priorities so they're never far away from me because we're trying to do especially at early stage business we try and do so many different things right. It's that transitional piece going from fundraising, then you're doing a sales, then you're yep. trying to do with the product team. If you've got all the key pointers there, it's, you can just flick your eyes and you can switch into that room a lot quicker. And it works for me anyway. Nice. I like that. I really like that. Yeah, you're right. You have to multitask and they're so different. It's not like you're multitasking between building this part of a product to another part of the product. It's like product, people, fundraising, it's all over the map. That's nice. What about a good, what about your favorite European city? Yeah, that's a good one. Wow. I like them all. I I like Scandinavian cities, actually. So I, I love Oslo. I like Helsinki, which is probably not, yeah, they're a little bit austere. They're not the classic Mediterranean type things, but there's something very structured and clean. And I don't know. Um, there, yeah. I always find. Minimalistic. Minimalistic. Yeah. I find them relaxing. Um, yeah, it's definitely on my list to do this year. I haven't done any of the Scandinavian city, but I have a lot of friends there, so I hope to visit. And the last one is a favorite quote. It could be yours. It could be something, you know, of someone else's, but you say to yourself or say to other employees in your company, or just something that you, that resonates with you. Yeah, I suppose it's from my own and it's probably more from my mother. Yeah, it's if you look at your fridge and you've got three items in there, you can always make a meal. Really appreciate what you've got and make the best that you can from it. And I think that's very really... original. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and it, it's important in the startup life because you're limited, but there's always a healthy, good meal to be had and you just have to see what you've got. So I suppose my mother was looking at it from a point of gratitude. But I think it's, it's definitely... Uh, applicable when you're looking at startup business absolutely laundry thank you so much for being on this podcast tonight today with me i really enjoyed our conversation and i look forward to following you on your journey thank you thank you thanks very much
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening and until next time, keep building.